You are listening to a recording of a MedAct action call, Building the Health Movement for a Green New Deal. The event took place on the 9th of July, 2020. A huge thank you to our guest speakers, Dr. Abdul El Sayed, former health director of Detroit and professor at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health, Guppy Bola, former MedAct interim director, chair of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, researcher and public health strategist, and Dr. Stephanie Davis-Lebrun, clinical psychologist, working in older adult mental health services and a member of the Northwest branch of Psychologists for Social Change. We hope that you enjoy the podcast. Uh, my name is Mary. I am a final year medical student at Glasgow University and I'm also a very proud member of MEDAC Scotland. I'm here today to facilitate this session along with Rob from MEDAC. Um, I just thought I'd give a bit of background as to what MEDAC do, who MEDAC are. Um, MEDAC are a public health campaigning organisation and we wish to challenge the, the social, the political and the economic factors which contribute to poor health and deepen health inequality. MEDAC do that by lots of different streams, but primarily they, they really want to enable their members to take practical action um, on all of the issues. And that could be running campaigns or publishing reports, but they also provide a space where we can, we can discuss ideas like, like this tonight and encourage each other to, to make real change in our fields of work. So today we're going to be talking about the Green New Deal. I appreciate this can sometimes be quite a big sort of conceptual idea to get your head around. So we're really hoping that by the end of the evening, you'll have a really firm understanding of what the Green New Deal actually is, and specifically what role healthcare workers can play in championing a Green New Deal that has public health at the heart of its focus. And I think that um, it's important to note that as we move to this post-COVID recovery phase and we start talking about the future and, and climate change dialogues become really prominent uh, in the mainstream media. I think it's really important that we, we begin to talk about climate change in a way that goes beyond just climate science and actually we start talking about issues of justice and uh, that could be economic justice, social justice, um, all these kind of things. And I think that that concept of intersectionality um, is really what the Green New Deal highlights, the importance of of bringing all these different streams of thought into our discussions about climate change. So I'm going to introduce our first speaker. First speaker is Guppy Bola. Uh, Guppy was the former director of MEDAC, so I really hope I've done your work justice. Guppy, she's a researcher and a public health strategist with a background in economic justice campaigning. So today Guppy will be talking to us about her recent report, Rethinking Public Health, and she will also be exploring how the Green New Deal can address health inequalities. So, Gaffi, it's over to you. Hi, Tari. Um, I was grinning slightly at the beginning of your introduction because I don't, I don't have a tendency to simplify um, complex ideas. I have a, a tendency to want to uh, bring clarity to them. So I think that's what I'm going to do. So, um, I'll maybe introduce the Green New Deal a little bit from my perspective, but um, I'm actually going to throw quite a lot of information <laughs> in your direction um, and probably push you quite a lot to um, the edges of what you believe and understand to be climate action um, uh, in the context of climate justice work. So, um, okay, let's begin. Yeah, so as um, I said, I'm going to be speaking a bit to the work that I've done with Commonwealth and actually the report um, which released got released last week um, is about 15 years of thinking <laughs> put into 20 pages. Uh, so it's really like not a document that offers answers. It's a provocation and um, an invitation to 
engage in this area of change um, that thinks about public health and demands us to think about public health and practice it um, in uh, the context of the crises that we're living in at the moment. Um, so when the Green New Deal started gaining space last year um, in the kind of political spectrum, I was really dismayed at how little attention was being put towards the role of public health within that. Because public health taught me how to care about the climate crisis, you know, it, it spoke to the growing health inequalities that are related directly to changing weather impacts. And public health taught me about economic justice, um, in particular how patterns of ill health and disease are reflected um, in where wealth exists and how it's extracted from communities. And public health taught me about intersectionality by introducing me to the complexity of a person's lived experience and how those experiences are shaped by the intersections of um, systems of oppression and discrimination. So it felt um, in all of the conversation around uh, the Green New Deal that public health was really fundamental and yes, it felt was, it was really missing. Um, so what I'm gonna try and do is speak a little about what the Green New Deal means to me um, and the work that I think that we need to do, how public health needs to be transformed what kind of frameworks can lead us to action um, and how you can engage in this work. Um, and simply, I'm going to try and introduce you to the idea of how racial justice strategies can intersect with climate justice strategies. Um, in a, a workshop that I normally take about four hours to deliver, I'm going to try and do it in about 10 minutes. Um, yeah, and really how the relationship between these strategies um, connects at the site of our body through our health and um, the health of our communities. So maybe some of you will have heard that the Green New Deal is ultimately a public investment program that supports you know, tackling the climate crisis at the same time as addressing inequality. And they do this by finding ways in which we can shrink the dominance of the fossil fuel industry um, through things like subsidies and taxation and um, working out how we can invest in green technologies to bring about more jobs in the low carbon green sector. Um, and if we were to design Green New Deal policies with these existing mainstream thinking around uh, climate inequality, uh, I think it might create a nice package of policies that could get some political traction um, and some political buy-in. But the version of the Green New Deal, um, well, that version of the Green New Deal does not much for me in terms of inspiring me into action because what it looks like uh, in what I've seen at the moment is, you know, cycle lanes and car-free hospitals. And this report is not about cycle lanes and car-free hospitals, as nice as they are. This report is much more um, uncomfortable um, because it also has to speak to the experience of discrimination um, and the way in which we are not going to get very far if we don't look at that within um, the policies of the Green New Deal. Um, so yeah, the report is entitled Rethinking Public Health because in order to do this work public health practice and professionals really need to step up and one thing I think we forget too often is that healthcare, health inequalities are avoidable and unfair and I remember rereading this over and over again and just reminding myself they are unfair and avoidable and with this increasing divide between the most deprived and the least deprived it suggests that something very active is happening in the system to create that health gap. And too often we look at those impacted by health inequalities um, or the least, uh, the most deprived with a form of passivity or a sort of sense of paternalism, which prevents us from really addressing the root causes of ill health. Um, and so in order to do this better, we definitely need a better analysis of um, the system that we're living in. 
So my thoughts started racing maybe about a year ago when I read a report um, or one study in East London in which um, the variants of impacts of air pollution were measured in residents of Newham um, based on their racialized identities. And it told um, us that uh, we already know about, we told us something that we already know about social determinants health, but it, oh, sorry, I missed my, um, oh yeah, it told us what we already know of social determinants of health, but so often ignore, which is that the incidence of asthma was higher in people of color, not because they lived closer to the road or did less exercise or had le less access to um, income or poor housing conditions compared to white people. Because when all of those were controlled, it actually suggested that the experience of discrimination was the connecting factor between um, them having an increased incidence of asthma. And you'll say that you can't conclude much from one study, and I completely agree, but we've spent too far and too long fumbling around finding other factors or other reasons why um, discrimination can't be the only thing that's at play. And of course, it's not the only thing at play, but we, dis we ignore it so much and don't even bring it into um, the epidemiological data and analysis in the way that it should be invested in, um, in terms of understanding people's lived experience. And because we've shied away from naming discrimination and how it operates, we've just kind of left the door open for uh, people's experience of in health inequalities to be interpreted um, in many different ways, in ways that are often full of prejudice and very damaging. So we've sometimes had Tory ministers suggesting that residents who live underneath airports made the choice to live there so that they should just deal with the consequences of um, air pollution and onset of asthma, or that the compounding factors of obesity, um, levels of physical act activity or food consumption were lifestyle choices and things that people had to find the agency themselves to deal with. And sometimes when I think that we're advocating for things like warm homes and greener spaces, these are nice, like I mentioned, but at the scale of what is actually happening to individuals and communities and has been happening for decades, if not centuries, it isn't really representative of the policy response that we need in order to address health inequalities as they present today. So I focus much more in the paper on the experience of inequality because of the issues prompting many to advocate for Green New Deal are reflections of a broader health crisis. Um, and to give you a better picture of the kind of the active systems at play, which I want us to really understand. Um, also, sorry, can I have a time check um, whenever I'm five minutes towards the end? That would be really great. Um, I want to read an extract from um, an interview with a trans activist called Nim Routh, who, if you don't know, I'll drop the Twitter, their Twitter handle um, at the bottom later. Uh, because they describe this so much better than I could. So there are real parallels in the way that humans extract from the planet and create borders and police populations in the service of profit. And the way that humans extract what they need from the bodies of people and create borders between our bodies and control us in the service of profit. Many of the ways you understand the category and categorize people in modern world were constructed explicitly by Northern Europeans in order to justify their project of global dominance, dominance and wealth accumulation i.e. colonialism, via industrial capitalism in the 19th century. They needed a workforce to deliver that expansion and extraction from the planet. And there were certain types of bodies that were deemed useful and not useful in that conquest. The colonizers assigned value to different human life to morally justify to themselves the degradation and dehumanization of different peoples in pursuit of personal wealth. A key function of that dehumanization was to reduce people to bodies 
and to reduce bodies to a vessel of labor or a tool of production. Black bodies were enslaved to provide free or forced labor to expand and extract resources um, for Europe, while disabled people were deemed unfit as they couldn't produce labor and needed and were not needed in the industrial workforce. workforce. And LGBTQ people were deemed immoral because they weren't able to reproduce the workforce that was needed for industrial expansion. So as a result, those definitions, we sort of exist in a system in which discrimination operates um, in service of the economy that is built and has entrenched many ideas about many groups of people that we as public health have replicated in the way we speak about marginalized communities, the way we research marginalized communities, and therefore the way we attend to policies that are meant to address marginalized communities lived experience. Um, and importantly, yeah, we will not do justice to health inequalities solely from the perspective of just looking at wealth and, wealth and income data that has some correlation to people's um, health inequalities. And the WHO's conceptual framework of social determinants of health asks us to inquire how macroeconomic and social policies shape an individual or community's social economic position. This should be done also by interrogating how each person benefits or struggles from systems of power that make up the economic system, first by naming them and then by using health data to explain how they operate. Like every human experience, data needs to be sophisticated and complex in describing the associated experience of discrimination, marginalization and oppression. Can I just check how much time I have before I go on? Um, I think you have a few more minutes. I think that's fine. Well, it's few. It's very subjective. <laughs> uh, four minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> fine. Okay, we can do this. Um, so if we can understand the depths to which the extractive economy is impacting our health, we will have a much more strategic position. We'll be in a much more strategic position to do something about it. But we also need public health professionals, health activists, medical health professionals, um, to be better at speaking to one earth we are trying to build as an alternative to the, to the extractive economy. So there's a lot of work to do on actually understanding what's going on, but there's a whole other lot of work to do in even speaking to a vision um, of what we're trying to build. And it strikes me that I hear, I hear very few health professionals, very few people in the health community talk about a health-centered economy when it seems fundamental that that is what we are trying to create. But to do this, we don't need to start from scratch. So don't worry if it feels like something that you're far away from. Um, instead, we can look to the historic work that marginalized communities have been doing by learning from their experience of health and placing that in the broader strategy adopts the principles of reimagining public health. And in, I'm not gonna go into it now, but in the report, there are some case studies of some excellent communities who have basically used their experience of interrogating why they're existing with ill health um, to look at the structural sort of um, systems around them and collectively organizing to do something about it. Um, and I so I encourage you to just read those case studies. Um, but there's been so little attention paid to it because the capacity for our mainstream movement to design visionary policies is so limited. Those designs have come from a position of privilege and that experience of whiteness, middle-classness, able-bodiedness, straightness, it's just nowhere near the full experience of uh, those at the sharp end of inequality. And we know who is at the sharp end of inequality because of the names and faces of those that have died from, for example, COVID-19 and many other crises, crises that have come before it and will come afterwards. Um, there's an uh, activist from the US called A.G. Marie Brown, who's amazing, who writes, imagination is one of the spoils of colonialism and colonization, which in many ways is claiming who gets to imagine the future for a given geography, 
Losing our imagination is a symptom of trauma. Reclaiming the right to dream and strengthening the muscles to imagine together as black people is a revolutionary decolonizing activity. So for this paper, I didn't just sit in my room and pontificate <laughs> on what it could be like <laughs> to build a, a Green New Deal that is centered on sort of intersectional and intergenerational and international principles. Um, I looked at the communities who have been doing that work for many years. So I looked at the knowledge and um, yeah, expertise of indigenous communities, migrant communities, the queer liberation movement, disability justice activists, and those committed to black liberation. And that is where I started from and that is where I invite you to begin. Um, I'm gonna end quickly by just saying yeah, we have clear evidence the past decade has been lost in health um, improvement because of austerity um, in which the social, social infrastructures that we've relied on for so long have been dismantled. So in the UK, we're doing incredibly badly. You know, um, a working class woman from the north has worse health outcomes today than she did 10 years ago. We're also in the middle of a pandemic in which the government is um, severely mismanaging in which many, many people are dying, but which is also presenting who is dying first. And we need to really pay attention to what that means. And we're at the precipice of climate, like really incredible climate breakdown, which we as the UK are historically responsible for. So if this is not our time, I just do not know what is. Like we are being called act now and I yeah just really encourage everyone I know you're gonna be like what do I do which is great and I'm like look forward to the Q&A's but um yeah we just really need to organize thanks thank you thank you so much Guppy um just to say on a personal level like I found found your work and the report so incredibly inspiring and to everyone watching right now if you have like a spare I don't know how however long in the next few days to read the report I really recommend you make that the next report you read because it's truly an incredible piece of work I've put a link to uh, to it on the Commonwealth website in the chat now um, just to introduce myself my name is Rob um, I'm the climate and health organizer at MedAct um, and I'm really excited to be introducing to you um, our next speaker, um, Dr. Abdullah Said. So just to introduce him very quickly, um, Dr. Abdullah Said is a physician, epidemiologist, public health expert and progressive activist. He was previously the health director of the city of Detroit and a professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Columbia University. In his work, he's recently made the case of why we should think um, the Green New Deal as a new deal for public health. And today he's joining us all the way, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Abdul, you're joining us from Michigan in the United States. Right. Over to you, Abdul. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, first, I have to say that, uh, you know, it's a privilege to, um, to catch up with my old um, classmate, uh, Guppy, who uh, was my classmate in Oxford when um, I, I lived in your uh, beautiful country for a couple of years um, while I was uh, doing a master's and then uh, a DPhil. Um, and, you know, the, the uh, fascinating thing is uh, the best part I, I always think about growing up, quote unquote, is watching your friends grow up. So um, it's, it's, it's been uh, a privilege uh, watching you work and, and, and reading your work. And um, I hope that uh, all of you are so privileged to have uh, awesome folks with whom you, um, you, you get, to, you get to, to grow up. So if the gray hair, you know, uh, if, the, if there's a silver lining aside from in your head, uh, it's the... Um, it's the it's the watching folks uh, getting older. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to 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 be with you. The beautiful thing about um, about webinar is that you get to cast into uh, evening time in the UK. It's still, as you can see, um, middle of the day here in in Michigan. 
I, uh, I'm an accidental environmentalist. And uh, let me explain why. Um, when I was in the UK, actually, one of my best friends on the scholarship that uh, took me to, to England uh, was an environmental economist. And at that time, I was uh, studying public health. And um, I sat down with him one day and he said, you know, I you should really pay a lot more attention to the, to the environment. And I asked him why. Um, because for me, the environment was always polar bears and Icelandic fjords. I still don't know what a fjord is, but um, people trying to explain to me why I should care about fjords and polar bears. And for me, uh, the question I kept asking is, look, you know, my grandmother, um, she was the wisest, most intelligent person I've ever met in my life. And she grew up in Egypt where she got married when she was 15 and had eight kids, two of whom died before the age of one. The infant mortality rate in my grandmother's family was 25%. Tell me why I should care about polar bears when babies still die. Because the fact of the matter is, every summer when I'd go visit my grandmother, I'd travel about 15 hours and 10 years difference in life expectancy. But I didn't have to go that far. If I were to drive from where I am sitting right now uh, into any neighborhood in the city of Detroit, I'd be driving 10 years difference in life expectancy. Babies die at that rate in high-income countries all the time. We just choose not to, not to pay attention to it uh, because, of course, we've um, been tricked by averages to believe uh, the net equities are okay. And um, so sitting across from my friend, I said, I don't know why I should care about these things uh, when, in fact, babies are dying. Tell me how they affect babies. And he said, you know, they are one and the same. And I hope that someday you figure that out. Fast forward about seven years, and um, uh, I am taking a role as health director in the city of Detroit. Um, my job was to rebuild a health department that had been shut down when the city was facing bankruptcy and state takeover of its finances. They made a decision to shut down a 185-year-old health department in a city with a higher infant mortality rate than my father's native Egypt, and I already told you what the statistic meant for my family. Uh, they shut down a department in a community where our children face threefold the probability of being hospitalized by asthma, fourfold the probability of being exposed with lead, shut down a 185-year-old health department. And um, in my work, uh, we were really focused on the challenges that transmitted intergenerational poverty. We wanted to leverage health to disrupt intergenerational poverty. And the goal there um, was, was really brought on by um, the fact that for the first three weeks of my job, I had no clue what I was doing um, until I got educated by a three-year-old little boy. And he was the fourth child of a 21-year-old mom, met his father probably four times in his life because his dad is the victim of mass incarceration. Um, and uh, this kid was not your average kid. Most of the time when you meet a three-year-old, I'm, I'm sure all of you have had this experience, they don't like walk up to you and shake your hand, give you a big hug and, you know, go about their day. They look at you, realize they don't know who you are, and then bury their face in their parents. This kid didn't do that. Gave me a big hug, shook my hand, had a whole conversation with me. And I'm sitting here thinking that this boy's natural confidence is being fundamentally undercut by the circumstances of his life. And our job is about making sure that he has the opportunity to learn and earn in a community like Detroit, like we would want for any, any child anywhere. And so we set about trying to, to, to think about the health outcomes that mattered most to disrupting intergenerational poverty. One of those outcomes was asthma. And I already gave you the asthma hospitalization differences, threefold the probability of being hospitalized with asthma if you live across the city line versus just north uh, in Oakland County where I grew up. And um, we got to thinking about what the causes were. And 
when we started mapping asthma hospitalization incidents as well as lung cancer incidents, we found that the worst uh, place to be in Michigan was this zip code called 48217. And 48217 happens to be the home of a constellation of different corporations, all of which uh, pollute extensively. And because in our country, we've gutted the infrastructure to regulating uh, corporate polluters, and uh, we're on the precipice, unfortunately, of cutting the legislation as well, um, these folks were being bombarded by, uh, by all kinds of regulated pollutants. And the worst of them was sulfur dioxide. And the worst of the worst was a petroleum refinery uh, owned by Marathon Petroleum. And um, Marathon, uh, in my second year at the job, wanted to raise its emissions of sulfur dioxide um, when the EPA, the, the federal agency overseeing environmental protection, already had deemed 48217 as being in what's called non-attainment, meaning there was too much sulfur dioxide in the air as it was. And here we are, this corporation is trying to increase its emissions. Um, and that was the moment that everything my friend had said had clicked. Because oftentimes when we think about climate change and our responsibility to it, it is easy to make the problem feel so um, abstract, like it's some stuff in some air that has some impact on some temperature over a long period of time. Um, but what we tend to ignore is that all of those pollutants that drive that climate change come from somewhere. And the people who live next to the airport or the people who live next to the petroleum refinery, these are the folks who suffer at worst. Because as those pollutants go up and destroy our atmosphere, they're being sieved through the lungs of children like this little boy. And on its way up, it causes threefold the asthma hospitalization rate, one and a half times the probability of cancer mortality. And our responsibility is to take that on. That was the moment that I became an environmentalist. I want to speak specifically to the Green New Deal for a second. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I happened to run in the same uh, election cycle as uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who everybody now knows as AOC. Um, and I remember when this idea had sort of come up. And, um, when I think about public policy, the question I always ask is, what does it mean for that little boy? And I want you to think about what the Green New Deal is. It is a interlocking system of solutions to an interlocking system of problems. We know we have a climate change crisis that is barreling down on us and we have to solve it. But we all know that we have hundreds of thousands, now millions of people who are structurally cut out of the economy and we know that both your country and mine, that our infrastructure is failing. It has been failing for a long time because we have stopped investing in public goods. So the question of the Green New Deal is a pretty simple one. How do we put millions of people to work building out green tech and infrastructure to address our climate crisis? That's, that's the question here. And then I think about that little boy and I think about his circumstances. It's not just that he has to breathe the air coming out of the, 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 the tailpipes of trucks idling in his community or of the smokestack in uh, that Marathon Petroleum Refinery. It's also that that boy's dad, even before he became a victim of mass incarceration, his probability of being out of work in the city of Detroit was upwards of 20%. Now, after COVID-19, it's even higher. And then I think about the fact that in Detroit, we undid our light rail system because, of course, Detroit is the country that put, uh, Detroit is the city that put the country and the world on wheels, right? Ford and Chrysler and General Motors are headquartered uh, not too far from where I am right now. 
And so to show the world how the car was going to fundamentally change American life, what did they do? They undid their mass transit system. Now we have a system of buses that come every hour if you're lucky. And, um, and so I think about that boy's life and about what a Green New Deal would mean for him, about his ability to breathe easy in the community in which he was born and raised, about his ability to know that his parents have high quality uh, jobs that pay a living wage that come with benefits, his ability to move around community uh, that he lives in. And to me, that is a clear win. And the implications around addressing his health go well beyond simply the pathologies that we pay attention to under the skin, but also seek to address the social pathologies that create inequities that tend to fall on kids like him uh, too early and throughout their lives. And so uh, to me, this is an obvious uh, 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 approach. And I think that any of us who believe in the public's health, who neglect the responsibility that we have to thinking about the health of the globe, which is the single place, as, as far as we know, unless Elon Musk's got something going on we don't know about, um, is the single place where all humans have to live, um, then I, uh, I, I think it behooves us to, to act. And I'm really grateful for your leadership and your uh, activism in taking this on and in recognizing these connections. Uh, and, um, and I really appreciate you having me today. Thank you so much, Abdul. Um, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that was extremely inspirational. Um, and it's really interesting to hear your story uh, on the journey to becoming a climate activist and you know embracing the Green New Deal and wish you all the best. I know that you have to go around what I think is three o'clock your time. So uh, just to mention, don't worry about that, that's all right. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, I'm going to introduce our third and final speaker for the evening before we go to Q and A's. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce you Dr. Stephanie Davis-Lebrun. So Dr. De Stephanie Davis-Lebrun is a clinical psychologist working in older adult mental health services and is a member of the Northwest branch of Psychologists for Social Change. She has recently contributed to an open letter calling for a just recovery to COVID-19. When researching human rights in acute mental health ward, on acute mental health wards, she started exploring how the physical environment can impact on psychological well-being and has since become more interested in the idea of psychologically healthy community spaces. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Stephanie. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to just attempt to share my screen because I do have some slides. Um, so we'll see if this works. Um, let's have a look. Hopefully that's worked for people um, and people can see it okay. It's mainly just to not be able to have to see my face as I talk, to be honest. Um, but yeah, thank you for that introduction, Rob. Um, like I say, I'm a member of Northwest Psychologists for Social Change, um, and recently we've been campaigning for a just recovery to COVID-19. Um, so I thought I would kind of start, first of all, with giving just a bit of an introduction about Psychologists for Social Change for those that have not heard of us before. Um, so we're a network of psychologists, um, kind of applied psychologists in any um, background profession, um, who are interested in applying psychology to policy and political action. Uh, we believe that people's social, political and material context are central to their experiences as individuals. And we really would love to encourage more psychologists to draw on our shared experience and knowledge to engage in public and policy debates. So kind of really get in, involved in those in politics basically as well as our day jobs. Um, projects have included, I've just put a little note there, a briefing paper on the impact of austerity, austerity um, psychological impact assessment of universal basic income, 
um, education, um, done a recent briefing paper on racism is not entertainment. Um, lots of kind of projects on the ground as well um, within communities. Um, I've put the impact of austerity near the beginning because um, in that paper we draw on the five key indicators of what a psychologically healthy society would look like and I'm going to come back to those kind of later in the presentation. I think it's been really great to kind of hear both Guppy and Adul's um, presentations today because I think it's going to fit quite nicely with what I speak about because I guess I'm speaking about from a position of being a clinical psychologist working in the NHS as a health professional. So I'm going to be talking a little bit more about those kind of things that we can do on the ground but I think throughout that it's going to be really helpful to keep everything that Guppy and Abdul have talked about in mind um, as well. Um, so this was just kind of a little um, introduction to what we've been campaigning for recently. Um, so in Liverpool and Manchester, um, we have Metro Mayors, I don't know if people have come across that before, kind of meaning that they ha we have devolved powers to make decisions on kind of housing, transport, skills, business, that kind of thing. Um, and the mayors in the North West, Liverpool and Manchester, have expressed a commitment to Build Back Better campaign, um, which is great, so going to keep optimistic about it <laughs> and say that it's um, you know, it's a welcome commitment and obviously we just kind of wanted to um, express our views on what we feel um, a just recovery after COVID-19 would look like. Um, I guess when we started this campaign we kind of called it just recovery, we talked about Build Back Better but actually I think Green New Deal fits very nicely with all those concepts as well um, and that is something that as PS PSC as an organisation we are interested in. Um, so kind of a contribution to that commitment that the mayors um, you know have made um, we kind of talked about points around homelessness you know, in, the, in the northwest we have increasing and huge amounts of homelessness um, and food poverty as well um, massive numbers of people relying on food banks um, relying on universal credit um, very high numbers of unemployment um, things like that. I'm, I'm not it's not a very good advert for the northwest but <laughs> there are great things as well but we you know kind of some of the highest rates of long-term physical health conditions um, you know highest amount of diagnosis of anxiety depression um, things like that so obviously these are all things that we wanted to comment about as part of this um, wider commitment because obviously there is a lot of talk about environmentally friendly cities um, and the impact of this on well-being but kind of the theme of this has been that actually sometimes it's greater it's greater than putting in a park in the city um, or you know insulating homes it's there's a lot more to it than that and I think you know we've been really just trying to emphasize that what we would really need for um, kind of just recovery to COVID-19 is equality for everyone. Um, so just a bit of background to that. So obviously we're here to talk about the Green New Deal. So um, just in terms of linking this to wellbeing, and I guess wellbeing can include psychological and physical wellbeing. Um, we've heard a lot about the Green New Deal today, kind of advocating for social and economic equality, creating new secure jobs, economy that serves everyone, uh, protection of our climate and um, promoting global justice as well. 
So this is where I really wanted to link in those five indicators of a psychologically healthy society that um, psychologists for change, social change have um, developed in the austerity briefing paper. Um, so the first indicator, um, we talk about agency. So the kind of feeling like you have control to make your own decisions um, in life. And I think just thinking about kind of that link to the Green New Deal and thinking about young people, young people um, are now reporting that the most important issue facing the world right now is climate change, but yet they don't have any control in it. A lot of them um, not old enough to vote. Um, you know, kind of very much feeling the responsibility of something that has been caused by our generation and generations before us um, that they're actually going to have to deal with and not having a sense of agency within that. So kind of that comes into, in, into equality as well and that we need to get everyone involved in this. Um, we need to have everyone in society feeling like they have control over what their future is going to look like. Um, thinking about security, um, it's important for um, societies to be psychologically healthy that people feel they have a sense of security. Um, you know, we kind of currently live in houses that aren't very ecologically friendly. We have flats and apartment buildings that are unsafe due to cheap materials. And I think, you know, when I think about that, I think about Grenfell Tower um, and kind of work in buildings that don't offer anything towards our well-being. Um, and of course, there's many people without any secure housing at all. Um, and I think everyone should have the right to feel safe and secure um, with a home. And also, I think our kind of infrastructure, our spaces should give back to the environment um, and kind of give back to us as well in terms of improving physical and psychological health outcomes. You know, I think it's already been talked about today that um, we kind of have design um, that doesn't really benefit anyone <laughs> um, at the moment. So, so yeah. Um, Thinking about connection, um, kind of connection, feeling connected to society, feeling connected to others, obviously to maintain um, psychological healthiness. Um, like I say, that infrastructure can help us feel more connected to others. Um, our cities and the way we work actually encourage sedentary lifestyles. You know, we kind of get in the car to go to work, we sit on a bus, we sit on a train, we sit in an office all day, every day. Um, we need radical new design um, within our cities and spaces um, which we know we already know it's already proven that this results in better health outcomes um, and we also need that design to help foster a sense of community and um, kind of more shared spaces that we can we can use together um, I think about meaning as well this is another key indicator um, so kind of just having a sense of purpose in life. Um, for example, we know that people can get a sense of purpose through, um, through their job, um, through creativity, through, through spirituality. Um, we know that people are more likely to be happy in their job and feel more productive when they believe it has a sense of purpose. And I guess um, it's a bit of a cheesy point, but um, you know, what better purpose is there to work towards saving the planet? Um, and obviously, this is what we kind of need to be thinking more about in terms of this, the climate crisis that we're in at the moment. Um, and then the fifth key indicator that we outlined was trust. Um, and I think, again, it's been kind of 
um, talked about today is that trust in the government currently is is reduced um, there are a lot of concerns around misinformation um, and you know you often hear now that we live in a post-truth society we do need strong government accountability um, and we do need more diversity between um, in those decision-making processes um, you know I think we're at a point now where we have so many people doing so many fantastic things on the ground so many charities networks you know we need to be hearing their voices more um, and help people to feel empowered in the decisions and also kind of on an individual level um, we need to foster a sense of trust within communities through shared values um, so that we can all kind of enjoy um, living in a psychologically healthy society um, and I've just put at the bottom there that policies that encompass these values can help to bring a truly equal society and I've kind of highlighted truly there because um, you know, we have equality laws, equality and diversity laws, we have human rights laws, but actually the UK is still one of the most unequal societies in the world. Um, and, you know, this, where is accountability there? And we do have these laws in place. So, so yeah. So I'm going to only skip through this because I think it's been talked about quite a lot already, but kind of what an equal society can do for us. It can benefit everyone in society. It doesn't make one group worse off and one group better off. Um, it makes everyone better off. And I think, you know, it's, it's an important point to think about that the current economic system that we have has actually reached a ceiling effect. It's not making anyone better off anymore. We've reached a point where we're seeing a turn now and it's a downturn. So for example, there are people um, who are gonna be born kind of in the next decade or so, whose life expectancy will be less than ours. Um, so it's, you know, the structure that we have at the moment just isn't working for us and it's time to rethink it. It's, it's time to think how to do things differently. Um, and I just put a few points there about kind of um, equal societies and and how they can improve outcomes in in kind of many many different ways um, so very important point <laughs> what can we as health professionals offer because I think sometimes you know I've been on webinars before where I've just felt inspired by them but completely overwhelmed at the same time and I think um, I think it can feel overwhelming so kind of just a few points on what we can offer on the ground um, I think inequality shows itself most clearly in health and social care settings therefore we do see how it impacts on people we have that in-depth knowledge of what equality does to people um, and i think we really do need to share these stories more loudly and more often um, you know we have the huge privilege in being able to gain all of this rich information and hear lots of people's different stories um, just from going to work every day we see society through everyone's eyes and I think we should use this knowledge that we have. Um, I also think we have a professional duty to follow the evidence base um, and we cannot pick and choose which evidence base we follow. Um, I thought that was quite a frank point but I actually feel like Guppy has been quite frank today as well so it's okay, <laughs> I'm going to go with it. Um, you know what I mean by we cannot pick and choose which evidence base to follow. I'm going to give quite an, a psychological example because that's probably what I know best but I'm just thinking about you know someone that comes to see us who might have a diagnosis of depression our evidence 
currently tells us that if someone has a diagnosis of mild to moderate depression to give them a course of cognitive behavioural therapy. So we sit down with them, we assess them, we think about what's going to be best, we formulate and actually what we find is that this person recently has become unemployed. They recently have tried to apply for universal credit but they got knocked back. So they have no money for food, they have no money for bills. And here we are trying to get them to change how they think about their situation. Well, actually, we have a massive evidence base that tells us that poverty and austerity due to government policies can cause psychological distress. So why is it that we choose to follow one evidence base and not the other? And it, it feels like we now need to be shifting really towards that wider systemic evidence base. Um, also, services are becoming more and more stretched. Um, you know, like I say, I work in the NHS and just kind of growing waiting lists constantly. You know, what, at what point do we start demanding redesign of services? It's quite clear that how we work now is not working in anyone's favour. Um, you know, I think part of it is about investment and finance, but I don't think it's all about funding. I think we live in a very individualistic society and I think our healthcare services focus on treating individuals and individual problems. And I think the Green New Deal moves us more to a collectivist position. I think where we can redesign services that um, kind of take these wider, wider issues into account um, and can think about health outcomes in a different way rather than locating it as a problem within that person. Um, yeah, so I think we need to be shouting a little bit more about that, which leads me on to the next point of using our voice. Um, you know, we need to have confidence and feel empowered to research, to write, to speak, and um, we need to get more involved with service, service decision making, organisational policy decision making. You know, being a clinical psychologist in particular, it's a very powerful and privileged position, and there's no point having it unless you can use it for good. And I think it's really important that we try and use um, what we know and our expertise for meaningful change. And as Guppy said, now is the time to do this. You know, we're in a COVID-19 pandemic crisis. Um, you know, it's not the only crisis. We're in a diversity crisis. We've got, um, you know, a climate crisis going on. Um, but I think we've seen recently um, how people have been really valuing um, healthcare and social care professionals we've been a little bit more listened to than we perhaps have been recently you know scientists have been at those daily briefings they've been involved and actually it just feels like now is the time to move with that motivation and to move with those kind of positive views on healthcare professionals at the moment um, and and to try and to try and um yeah make some meaningful change really um so i think that's everything from me. Yeah, that's my call to action. But I will leave that in case um, in case I get that asked, asked that later. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. That was um, interesting. I really liked your sort of psychological approach to to adjust recovery. I, I never really considered that uh, when I think about the Green New Deal, but um, I found that really interesting. So we're going to move on now to the Q and A session. If um, if you wish to ask a question at the bottom of your screen, there should be a little Q&A button, which you can click and type in any questions. Uh, we've actually got two, two questions already for the panelists. So I'll start with the first one, uh, which is from Honey Smith, and it's about echo chambers. Um, so I'll offer this up to, to all the panelists and anyone who feels obliged can take it. 
Um, the Green New Deal is obviously born out of quite left-wing uh, politics. Uh, and Honey's wondering how we can engage right-wing governments uh, in this discussion. Um, I don't mind taking this because I read this and I thought it was an interesting question. Um, so I think we should work out whether, look, we're going to have Boris for the next four years. And there are many, there's the many reasons to why there are kind of very authoritarian um, forms of government with Trump and everything else that's going on. Um, what we are actually able to do in the timeline that we have at the moment or possibly a different form of government. A right-wing government is not going to implement the Green New Deal and we've seen that because of the way that it's been interpreted in the New, <laughs> New Deal version that, um, that Boris has um, kind of yeah, displayed recently. I think one of the reasons why I struggle to understand why um, we haven't moved on to the conversation or like use the concept of health more and I feel like this has changed since COVID but like really valuing health more um, and you, speaking as health professionals to engage people in that conversation and engage people in their um, experience of feeling um, like they have a lack of power and a lack of control over their lived experience and how that is impacting their health is because I think that transcends political identities so if thinking about building power beyond what's happening at a governmental level that can put us in a really good position for opportunities that might come up at, um, yeah, when elections emerge. But also it's really important to, yeah, I think the Green New Deal is very lefty. And I think one of the reasons, one of the things I write in the paper is that, you know, there's one thing around state intervention and state policies that are really important to take responsibility for things like tax redistribution and, um, uh, reparations and you know things that only can happen at a state level but uh, realistically the things that need to happen in terms of ownership and democratic economics like have to happen at the community level and we do have the capacity to do that that the powers at a local authority level are much stronger we see this in like many northern towns like in Preston and in the southwest where local authorities um, and leadership within local authorities that includes directors of public health recognize that there are powers that they can do to redistribute the money that they have been using for previous service provision into something that is much more long-term sustainable so like we should be doing that a lot more and working out ways in which we can do that and i think there's a, we need to make a difference between people who are driving so like wealthy people who are on the right who are driving the narratives that we have to adopt and absorb um and who um are actively working against the idea of the green new deal to um those who are impacted by those narratives and like finding ways in which we can build relationships with them um, around those common themes of, of people's health experience so that we can work together in the future on it. But um, I, I think that there are ways in which the Green New Deal doesn't need to be referred to as a Green New Deal, but also can be something that people can find attractive and want to buy into beyond, uh, yeah, beyond it being kind of like a leftist progressive agenda. I'll just uh, jump in and say that, um, you know, the, politics oftentimes folks sort of think of as being this force that just exists, that just happens upon you. And um, obviously I'm a lot less uh, uh, aware of and appreciative of the dynamics of British politics um, versus American politics. But um, my sense is that, you know, don't assent to it. Uh, choose to get involved. Choose to uh, vote your folks out. I mean, I think a lot of times when we think about activism, um, we sort of give up on the political sphere 
when you know we have one of the greatest tools at our disposal, which is democracy. And democracy doesn't just mean speaking truth to power, it means becoming power. It means changing the people who represent you. And, um, and I think the, the nice thing about your constituencies is that they're small. Um, you know, you think about a, a, an American, uh, an American district is 800,000 people. A, a, a district in the UK is 80,000 people. And um, the ability to push an 80,000 person district in a certain direction is pretty pretty big, um, especially given the fact that like the role that that money plays in your politics, thankfully, is far smaller than the role that money plays in ours. Um, you know, I ran for governor, which is you know a state of 10 million people, and I raised five and a half million dollars and got outspent six to one, right? Five and a half million bucks had to raise it. Um, you, you think about the amount of money spent in a constituency for an MP position. Um, and then folks will say, well, the parties control a lot of that. All right, well then infiltrate the party. Um, how do you make sure that folks who represent your uh, goals are being reflected in uh, labor or in whatever other party that you, you, you choose to be a part of? And so my, my sense is just that like, you know, there, there is a lot to change. And yes, you're stuck with Boris for four years. How do you make sure that four years from now um, that, that you, can, you can move the thing forward? And the last thing I'll say is that, um, the 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 way that um that politicians tend to think about these issues is uh in terms of the kind of vote cost it's going to to uh create and the more you can create movement on the ground and movement in the media and a narrative around these things you can push folks and um you know oftentimes like i you know i think about like the world under trump for the last three and a half years and Part of me is just like, yo, you, you all have Boris. <laughs> um, but, uh, but there is there is a way, I think, to force them to pay attention to the changing tide um, and to change a conversation around them, particularly your local MPs. And the nice thing about a parliamentary democracy is that, you know, your MPs are connected to the executive. Um, whereas for us, you know, Congress can do and say whatever it wants to do and say, doesn't change anything on the executive side of the, of the field. So um, just some, some reflections. But with that, I'm gonna have to roll. I really appreciate uh, your work and your activism um, and your leadership. And I uh, hope that we get to connect again soon, maybe um, uh, across the pond, maybe y'all can come, come here. Uh, we, we have a lot of work to do here too. So. Um, Really appreciate your uh, your time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Abdul. Goodbye. Um, we have another question. This is from Elmer. Um, this is uh, a question asking: uh, There's often a gap between what we know works and what's actually happening in real life. How do you find the energy to keep on fighting? <laughs> I think that's meant to be a bit less morbid than it sounds, but I guess what LJ is asking is how do you keep up that momentum uh, when it can be very exasperating to see the reality um, before us? Stephanie, I think you should take that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, yeah. Um, to be honest, I think, you know, sometimes it can feel demoralising, sometimes it can feel like it's difficult, um, you know, you kind of, you can feel a little bit downtrodden sometimes I think it's almost a little bit connected to the last point in that you need to find your allies and it's important to you know get a group together so you don't just feel like it's just you out on your own all the time um, and it's really about trying to build up from the 
bottom a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach because I think when you're building up from the bottom you get more small wins that kind of encourage more and more motivation and it does encourage you to kind of keep on going um yeah I think like I say it's finding your allies finding um, a network of people and I think that's really important as well kind of network of people there are there are always other people out there that that kind of work alongside your values that are standing up for the same thing you are you know kind of ps i work i'm part of psc but you know we have close links with medact there are always other people there so it's always really useful to pull resources as well so it's kind of not all down to you so yeah kind of find your allies go for those small wins that can encourage that motivation and kind of reach out to others as well Hopefully, yeah, I think that's, I was, I was going to say that um, one of the things I wanted to add to this was, um, you know, for me, it's like learning more about what is going on gives me much more foundation to be able to manage where to go. So the more I read about, um, and, you know, I take it from my experience of being a person of colour. So, like, reading more about the history of racism and how it exists and how it perpetuates itself and, um, and the kind of experiences people have. And being able to see myself in that and then also be able to understand others as a result of that means that I, I yeah, I feel more like I can situate myself in the world, but I can also spend time visioning what needs to happen um and i think that's really important to give you some because it, i think everything feels very unstable at the moment and if you don't and the whole thing about truth and what is truth like <laughs> to find that in um other people and to learn from other people as well is really like for me feeds into me a lot um and i think that there's and i was saying that because um psychologists and social change work the actual framework um, that stephanie um brought up earlier was was actually going to make it into the paper and then it didn't <laughs> but it was also really good for me to kind of speak to what I sort of um, read as a form of self-determination you know like you would want those five elements to self-determine so finding things like that that speak to your um, experience and then speaking out loudly what your vision is like I genuinely believe that we can manifest change by actually just saying what it is that we want to happen I'm like working very hard on um, this project that I dreamt about where Oxford University were going to undertake a, for, a process of reparations by giving lands to its long-standing migrant communities and I was involved in that process and I just really want that to happen. I um, both live in or have family in Oxford and also studied in Oxford so I have a very like strong tie to that um, to that city but I I keep feeling like if I say it more often then something will happen in the future very soon because someone will hear it and it will happen. Um, and the last, last thing is that we have to remember this has happened with Black Lives Matter recently and it's happened, you know, it happened with XR, it happened with many big movement moments, is that there is this like, we have to remember the cycles of the way that um, movements work and that you get a real big escalation and then you get sort of the slowing down. But the slowing down isn't the slowing down, it's us settling into the process of organising and learning and connecting. And I think that um, we, we, in the moments that movements feel silent, actually like a lot of the really hard work is happening and a lot of the really good work is happening. And um, I think we get a lot of energy from seeing like outward activism and that's very classical climate activism is like, you know, um, yeah, I guess marches and like um, direct action events, but the kind of deeper community level work that needs to happen around climate activism is something that we don't speak to enough and we don't actually invest in enough and um, 
those relationships are what will help you keep going in the kind of like peaks and troughs of the movement. Thank you to both of you. That was, that was um, some great answers and lots of food for thought. I think this whole idea of grassroots activism and, and communities is really important when we're, when we're addressing the climate change agenda. Um, we've got two more questions. Um, the first one uh, is asking, how can we be inclusive in bringing all people's perspectives into the Green New Deal conversation, especially those experiencing adverse conditions who perhaps don't share the same priorities as um, a lot of climate activists? Um, yeah, I think that's a really important point because I think there's always going to be a population out there who um, struggle to get their voice heard um, who I think we were talking about kind of trying to find that truly truly diverse voice that so that everyone feels like they're empowered to um, make decisions and have a voice in those decisions um, but yeah there's always going to be people in society who feel like they can't um, and I think sometimes it can be really hard to find those people as well and I think you know I'm just thinking about a project that we that we did with um, psychologists for social change where one of our members in London, you know, she went and just sat um, in communities where um, there are a lot of young people who there's a lot of kind of high violent crime. It was a very, you know, it took a lot of her time and it was a very brave act, but just spending time with people in those communities and really listening and really hearing them. And then I guess when I was saying, you know, we have a lot of power, we're in these privileged positions, we can then um, kind of listen, hear that and take that voice. But I guess it's, it's, we need to be really careful that we do that in a way that's kind of respectful and not tokenistic as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I've explained myself very well. Guppy might have more to, to add to that. I mean, it, this is like a, this is a lifetime work, <laughs> just to give you some, <laughs> offer some, um, to enter it with patience, like it's lifetime work. And I, I do think that uh, community organisers, activists um, have probably worked, walk this fine balance between accountability and building relationships um, and what can err uh, into like tokenism and extraction um, of relationships. So really understanding um, what it means to kind of like seek people's participation in the work that you want to do in order to make it accountable but also offer it integrity and to learn from um, those relationships but to do it in a way that actually centers others first um, and centers their priorities first before entering to yours and i think one of the best ways in which you can build a really regenerative learning process with each other is to um go to others by telling them or showing them the work that you've done already on trying to understand their experience and asking their permission as to whether you know you can engage in a conversation with them um, about how you could do better um, and then showing up for them before asking them to show up for you um, and I think that they are kind of like good processes to do I also think I mean so for someone who is like highly privileged but also lives with um, an ex experiences of marginalization and oppression um, the thing that I always come back to also is um, citation is feminist practice and uh, what I struggle with a lot and that so that quote is by Sarah Ahmed which is like important for me to say as I say this 
because um, acknowledging the work that grassroots communities um, and marginalized communities do and have been doing for decades is really, really important. And I think I write about this a little bit in the paper, um, that a lot of the ideas that are like new and are gonna help us get out of this crisis are indigenous practices or are practices from migrant communities and um, they're, they're not new ideas. So uncover them and respect them and uphold them and give them platform, um, but also give the kind of, uh, yeah, make sure that those communities are at the center of that and that we do the acknowledgement of the work that has gone before us, um, which is really, really important. Thank you both. I've, I've never actually heard that phrase tokenistic before, but I, I really like it. it kind of um, highlights that really difficult balance to amplify voices, but not make, make tokens of them. And um, we've got one final question, which we're, we um, can hopefully answer quite quickly. Uh, this is more about taking practical action. It's asking about um, the role that politics plays with healthcare workers. Um, and uh, there's clearly a good reason for healthcare workers to get involved with politics. They're respected and they have uh, quite a lot of social capital, but how do we, how do we use our voices uh, to speak up for a Green New Deal whilst maintaining the trust of our patients or people who might disagree with us? I think that's an interesting point <laughs> um, and I think hmm, I'm a bit I'm a bit torn with this because I think that I think when you're kind of trying to pitch an argument for something that feels so radical you are always going to com come up against conflict and it's about managing that conflict in the in the best way, in a way that you can keep integrity and you can keep relationships with people and trust with people. I think, I want to say that kind of the work that I do on a day-to-day -day is very connected with the work that I do with psychologists for social change, but there's also a bit of a gap between them in that it's kind of my individual work and my kind of professional work as a clinical psychologist it's very much informed by the person that's in front of me um, you know if if they're kind of saying I don't believe that I should be having this because of all these wider issues I'm gonna go with that um, you know I'm not gonna press my views on people that are coming to me for kind of support care and treatment but at the same time I guess it's thinking about that evidence base isn't it and thinking that actually we do need to be quite radical radical we do need radical change um and it's just i guess just keep voicing about the benefits that it could make for everyone you know it's just keep going with that message that you are going to come up with conflict and that sometimes that can be uncomfortable but it's kind of managing that uncertainty we talk a lot in psychology about having to manage uncertainty um, and manage and um, kind of tolerate um feelings of being uncomfortable um, but yeah, I get, I don't know if that's really answering the question, to be honest, because I guess because I've not been in a personal position where what I do kind of with psychologists for social change has impacted on the kind of individual client work that I do. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't feel like I've answered that well at all. <laughs> um, do I have time to uh, add a little bit? Cool. I mean, I think that that is, it is a, is a challenge. I think one of the ways that we can get caught up in um, 
feeling like we're unable to do that is by thinking about it on a one-to-one -one basis but like we are so strong when we are collectively organized and i think that the recent actions um like i have a union mindset in my head because i'm thinking about the way the bma operated during the covid pandemic and how they pushed for the government to really pay attention to the number of deaths both within bame staff members but also the bame community more broadly and you know whilst it took um a lot for to for that to happen and for that to be paid attention to there was this it wasn't just the health professionals so like having the relationships with uh think tanks like running need with two or three really um kind of like fast-paced journalists with a bunch of community organizations such as ubele um with other sort of high-standing uh health professionals and some or colleges you know like map out your ecosystem and work out uh who is going to stand alongside you and and speak with you so that you're not um, the only person saying it. And I think the more that you collectively say things that feel radical, but are actually so common sense, <laughs> um, it will come across that way because it is, uh, it is really common sense what we need to do. Um, and, and I think that kind of approach can be taken with um, individuals as well, you know, when you're, um, depending how you're engaging with people or if you're in the media, uh, to just speak to the fears that you have of the way that the structures are designed at the moment um, that keep perpetuating health, that we have in ill health, that we have data for to show, um, and that, yeah, that we need some kind of fundamental, quite radical shifts in the way things are operating in order for that to, you know, not, not be the case and, and for you to not mop up the crap at the end of the day from a system that no one has power over at the moment. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Thank you, Gappy and Steph. Um, we are going to, I think that's a close on our Q&A session. Um, you, please feel free to send more questions into the chat and we can um, answer them by email um, uh, if you prefer. I think I'll hand over to Rob now to, to bring this event to a close. Thank you so much. That was such a powerful point to end on as well. Um, I'm just going to sort of very quickly wrap up. Um, I just want to thank you all so much uh, for joining us this evening and thank you to our amazing and inspiring speakers for giving us the energy. We need to go out there and win a Green New Deal with uh, justice and global health at its core. Before we close, I just want to say that um, we can't emphasize enough the challenges of the coming weeks, months and years. With the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic only just beginning to reveal itself and the failure of our leaders to address climate injustice, uh, need for an empowered and principled movement for public health is needed now more than ever. We can't wait for those at the top to do the right thing. We need to make change happen around us in our communities. Whether it's creating good, well-paid green jobs, fighting for accessible infrastructure, or tackling racial and social injustice, wherever it may be found, there's power to be harnessed at a local and regional level to bring about a healthy society built on social well-being instead of profit. In the coming month, MedAct is going to be launching our Health for a Green New Deal campaign guide to help spark action locally uh, for a green and just recovery. Alongside this, uh, we'll be looking to run sessions with groups across the country aimed at building uh, your Health and Green New Deal campaigns locally. If you've been interested in setting up a campaign session with us, a link uh, should be appearing in the chat box around about now. Um, if you click on it, it'll take you to a form. If you fill that in, um, we'll be in touch. But um, that's pretty much us for this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I hope you all have a really nice rest of your evening. Thank you for listening. To find out more about future events, please sign up for email updates from us at www.medact.org forward slash emails. 
or visit the Medac calendar, which can also be found on our website.